Open the Word of God to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, just three verses. Verses 37 through 39. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen and amen. Amen. If any man thirst, the first thing you've got to ask yourselves today is, do you thirst? If any man thirst, it doesn't say, let him come unto the Holy Spirit. It says, let him come unto me and drink. It's going to Christ that needs to be the center of our church and the center of your lives. But you've got to have a thirst in order to want to go to him. It isn't enough to believe the doctrine. It isn't enough to sit in here. Those things mean nothing. The devils do both. It's to come to Christ in faith, life-changing faith, repenting of our sins, and feasting on Him, embracing Him personally and intimately that results in the blessing of the Holy Spirit in your life and having rivers of living water flowing out of you because of the superabundant supply that He will give after the day of Pentecost to those that believe on Him. Verse 39 is by John. And it gives us the explanation for verse 38. John wrote the words in 39. They're in parentheses to let us know that they are explanatory material. This spake he, meaning John wrote, Jesus meant in verse 38 about the living waters, a gift of the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for they hadn't received him yet in the way that they would receive him on the day of Pentecost and thereafter. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given in that personal indwelling way of being a comforter in the place of Jesus Christ because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. He hadn't been exalted and coronated yet in heaven, crowned in heaven, which he was to be shortly. So here we have this passage before us. It's a fabulous prophecy. Look at these three verses and look at the words of the Lord Jesus in verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, referring to the Old Testament prophecies of the Spirit of God being given, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Wonderful. And we know the fulfillment. It took place at Pentecost and thereafter. So there isn't difficulty in understanding the three verses. The the effort that we want to put forward today is to understand the details of the three verses and examine ourselves as to whether we fit in these verses. And it starts with examining yourself about your thirst. And if you're not thirsty, you have a serious problem because when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ and he, and he reveals to you and the universe about your lack of thirst for him, it means you're a reprobate. And if you're not a reprobate, you're a carnal Christian without any evidence of eternal life. Because born-again people thirst for God. He changes them. They have a new nature in them that is created in righteousness and in true holiness that loves God. And if you don't love God, you must not have that nature. Or you've crushed it down so small in your life by putting on the old man every day that your new man has no strength. You've got to examine yourself if you thirst. You're all busy. Some of you get a lot done. Some of you don't get anything done. But you're all busy. But busyness isn't life. Life is thirsting and pursuing and chasing and embracing and laboring for the meat that endureth unto everlasting life. It's going after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to get that out of these three verses Jesus didn't offer the Holy Spirit to anyone who wanted him. Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me 
These are his final words. This is an invitation if you want it. But you've got to thirst. Most people don't thirst, and we're going to deal with those things. Let's get into these verses, and let's finish them. You know the schedule for today. We can do it, the Lord being our helper. In the last day, that great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews had three annual feasts. The Feast of Passover, you know what that was about. Pentecost came 50 days later. That's why it's called Penta. 50 days after Passover, and then several months later was the Feast of Tabernacles, where they lived in booths or little stick huts in their yards or on their rooftops for seven days to remember how they lived when they came out of the land of Egypt and had no homes. Remember, they got up and left. And so they, they lived in little huts and little shelters of branches of trees, and so they would do that once a year, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And so the Lord Jesus is at that feast. We've already learned that in John chapter 7. These feasts were a week long and began with a Sabbath, not the weekly Sabbath, but an extraordinary Sabbath, and ended with a Sabbath. The eighth day of this feast, and I'm not going to turn you to Leviticus, but the eighth day of this feast was a Sabbath. And so you could do no servile work. No hard work on that day, just the minimum necessary to have a comfortable, relaxing day, and it would be quite pleasant after having seven days lived in a booth. And it wasn't a telephone booth. It was just a bunch of branches stuck together that you were living in. And so having that over with after seven days, and having a Sabbath, which made it a holiday, no work, no school, it's called the great day of the feast, because it's the end of it. And so we have these opening words of our Lord. Jesus stood and cried. Jesus stood up. He did not sit in the ground with his legs crossed like a Hindu guru, like is presented sometimes by Hollywood. He did not have his head bowed to the ground, mumbling little words like someone in a transcendental meditation phase like the Beatles did after they spent their time in India learning from the Hindu gurus. Those of you that have seen Jesus of Nazareth and other ridiculous Hollywood caricatures of him know what I'm talking about. He stood and cried because what he is saying is of great importance. And ministers of the gospel shouldn't be telling stories and they shouldn't be telling jokes. They should be crying to show people their sins and pointing them to the God that they're going to have to deal with one second after they leave this world. And so he stood and cried. I appreciate his bold and aggressive posture and action to preach God's gospel. He did not sit passively. Though he had traveled secretly to Jerusalem, he now preached boldly. Remember, we are taught earlier in this chapter, back in verse 10, that Jesus had gone up to this feast in secret because he didn't want his unbelieving brothers, literal brothers, siblings, to expose him to the hatred of the Jews. So he went up secretly, and he did not even manifest himself in the temple until halfway through the feast, like we have been told also earlier in this chapter. But now, in the last day of the feast, here he stands and he cries. And so let's look at that posture and that voice of his. He fulfilled Bible preaching. Bible preaching is to lift up your voice and to shout out the word of God because the things are important. The rewards are great, and the punishments are severe. And the God that we're, deal we're dealing with deserves your entire life, let alone a few minutes of time during preaching. Proverbs chapter 1, you don't need to turn to it, just listen to the words. Wisdom is preaching. Lady Wisdom in chapter 1 and verse 20, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse in the openings of the gates. So Lady Wisdom gives an example, and Jesus is looking like Lady Wisdom in the way he preached there in John 7. In Proverbs chapter 8, Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice. To put forth your voice is to throw it out there and to say things. Things need to be said. Your life is so short. Your time is wasting away. What are you doing with the God that created you and the Savior that rules the world? 
You're going to stand before him and give an account at his great white throne judgment. Lord, have mercy upon us. And let us appreciate the crying of God's prophets and apostles and pastors and teachers. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Who was that? But John the Baptist. He was crying with his voice. How about Isaiah 58 that you read last Lord's Day? And verse 1, cry aloud and spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. That is one of the reasons that I liked Ian Paisley from Northern Ireland because he lifted up his voice and he lifted it up very loud. And he lifted it up for many decades. And he never compromised it that we know of. And I thank God for that example of a voice being lifted up. But Jesus here, standing and crying, fulfills the Bible example of proper preaching. He had essential news. He appealed to the scriptures and he taught spiritually. He was nothing like Joel Osteen. There isn't a thing in Joel Osteen that's comparable to the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joel Osteen has never preached a single minute in his entire life. He entertains. He tells stories. He tells jokes. And he grins like a Cheshire cat and like a mannequin with its mouth formed in the form of a smile. His wife can out-preach him any time. I've heard her. And that is an example because that is called, he is called America's pastor. He isn't a pastor. He's an entertainer. You can't get to Joel Osteen. No one in his church can get to Joel Osteen. But the Lord Jesus Christ stood and cried. He didn't stand and tell a joke. Joel will tell you every single sermon he's ever preached that he has to start every single sermon with a joke. He'll tell you that. This is our Savior. And this is preaching. This is appealing to Scripture. It's quoting the Word of God and giving it and preaching spiritual truth and doing it loudly and intensely and preaching important matters. Finding financial prosperity in this world is not an important matter. Pleasing God is an important matter. Lord, help us. He did not entertain. He did not appeal to men. He did not quote men. He quoted the word of God. He didn't preach a prosperity gospel. He preached a spiritual gospel. And it's the gospel we should want. And it's the gospel we should thirst after today. But the Bible says he didn't lift up his voice. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 19 quotes from the Old Testament that Jesus did not lift up his voice in the streets. How do we reconcile that with him lifting up his voice in the temple? Because this is preaching, and that was self-promotion. Jesus, after he would perform a miracle, would tell those that he had healed, go tell no man. Why would he say that? To fulfill that scripture. He was not a self-promoter just based on a miracle. But he did preach that he was the Son of God, and God had sent him, and God was going to deal with that nation, and they should receive his preached word. And so there was a difference made, and we make that difference. That's why there shouldn't be anything coming out of our pulpit but exalting God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and emphasizing the spiritual ministry of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This should be the posture and action of any man of God following his captain. If Bible punishments are true, what kind of intensity and volume should come out of the pulpit? If the Bible punishments are true. What God can do in this life in chastening his children and what God will do in the next life, casting men for eternal torment into the lake of fire. What kind of voice should come out of the pulpit? What kind of content should there be? And what kind of delivery should there be? They both should be incredibly passionate and urgent and intense. And the Bible word is instant. Be instant, in season and out of season, 
And that old English word instant means to be insistent and pressing and urgent upon the people of God. And so Jesus was. Jesus knew the timetable. He knew that he was shortly to leave them. And then shortly that nation would be leveled by the Romans 40 years later. The danger is so great, but the rewards are so true that there's only one way to preach. The rewards are great. The most fulfilled life is a life that has embraced Christ. The most fulfilled future is a life that has embraced Christ. The greatest news you can ever have to share with anyone is the news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the rewards are great. The punishments are great. Therefore, the preaching ought to be intense. And so he stood and cried. Preachers must be bold doing it. They never know if it is the last time to exhort and warn one that might be sitting here today that will not be here a week from now or all of us not being here a week from now because the Lord has returned. A minister never knows. And so there is urgency for every single soul. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was urgent. He had a transcendent event to describe and to prophesy about, an earth-shaking, world-turning-upside-down event, and he declared it here in just a few words. God and man's relationship was to be altered drastically by God dwelling in average, common, poor, base, beggarly, weak, foolish men. Unbelievable. That's a description of our church beggarly, weak, base, foolish, and poor. Because God's chosen the beggarly, base, foolish, weak, and poor things of this world to bring to naught the things that are. We walk by faith, not by sight. Second time today to remind you that for you to appreciate the importance of this passage and the importance of Acts chapter 2 is to remember that the things out of your sight, all you have in the sockets of your skull are little bags of mucous membrane called eyeballs. What they can are able to latch onto is nothing more than something comparable in material, the junk of the universe. You have junk hanging in your skull, and all they can see is the junk of the universe. The things outside that vision, spiritual things, think of them, God, an invisible spirit, angels, invisible spirits that are flames of fire and are his ministers, heaven, out of your sight, morality, righteousness, justification, glorification, all these things outside of your sight, we walk by faith, not by sight. And if we walk by faith, this is a tremendous prophecy that is given here. But if you walk by sight, no, it didn't show up on ESPN's coverage of the NFL draft Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. It didn't show up. Nothing of importance showed up. They drafted a couple hundred men, treating them like cattle. All these poor little girls that worry about the exploitation of the female body. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue of what those NFL, those college football players go through to get drafted. But in all that coverage, all those people watching it, all the sportscasters and pundits talking about this body and that body and his fast twitch muscles and his slow twitch muscles and his height and his length and his hand size and all the junk, nothing of importance. Because all they were talking about is physical body that can be seen by the little sacks of mucous membrane hanging in your skull with a little bit of muscle attached to them. Lord, help us to look beyond that. You are going to, listen, your eyesight's going to go so soon. You know, a number of you have already put on contact lenses and are wearing glasses because your sight's already disappearing and it's going to disappear completely. But there are things that aren't going to change at all. And that's our Father in heaven, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit being the presence of God, and heaven, and the angels, and the host of heaven above, the spirits of just men made perfect. You can't see them because it's just their spirits. They'll get their bodies later, and those bodies will be glorified. Oh, Lord, help us to see what's really important. 
Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst. The thirst and drink metaphors here are the spirit. By John's explanation in verse 39, you don't need me to prove that to you. John, our writer, not John the Baptist, but John, our writer, the Apostle John, has already used water for the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3 and verse 5, except to be born of water. He's already used water for the Spirit in John chapter 4, where Jesus with the woman of Samaria offered her water that would take away her thirst forever. And so here John again, and Jesus again, is going to show us water as a metaphor, thirst as a metaphor, for our craving of Christ and being satisfied by Christ in us, the hope of glory, which is the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus dwells in us. He is with us forever by the Holy Ghost. And so that's the lesson here. That's the prophecy. And it's, if, it starts with, if a man thirst. If a man thirst. Most men don't thirst. And the ones that do thirst, that think they thirst, try to satisfy their thirst with the beverages of this life. Thirst is the uneasy or painful sensation caused by want of drink. To have a longing, craving, or strong desire. To desire vehemently. To long for something. Spiritual thirst is the dry, empty life of vanity and vexation without God. It's what happens to us when you get on the job and you've worked for several hours and there have been carnal people all around, carnal words all around, carnal ambitions all around, and all of a sudden you find yourself, who am I? Where am I? What does all this amount to? You're thirsty. And so you've got to get back to listening to Christian music, reading the Word of God, getting on your knees and praying, or getting into the house of God. Or you end up just like Asaph in Psalm 73. I was envious at the wicked. I was ready to quit. I've washed my hands in vain. I've been a Christian and lived the holy separated life for no profit. Because look at these wicked people around me. He lost his vision. He lost his perspective until he went back into the house of the Lord. And that's why we're here. And we have a few minutes. And you know that clock is moving on me. And you know I'm going to obey it today for a change. Maybe. I can't even trust myself in the matter. But while we're here, while we're here, let's read his words and let's take them personally. If any man thirst, David panted for God like a deer pants for water. Do you know where you could find that in the Bible? What book of the Bible would you turn to? Psalm 42 and verse 1. I pant and thirst for God like a heart pants for the water brooks, O God. Is that true of you? If it's not true of you, you have a problem. A serious spiritual problem. We do not want a church where you can ever be comfortable. We do not want a church where you can be complacent. We want a church that's going to stir you up when you come in here. We want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. They had the day off, but he wasn't going to let them have the day off. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And so I say to you, in the minutes that I have, are you thirsty? And we've got to start there. If you're not thirsty, you need to examine yourself. Why am I not thirsty? Because you've fed yourself with the soap bubble junk of this world. Your lives are a joke, every single one of you. Outside of Christ, your life is a joke. Mine's a joke. It's as big of, it's worse than the NFL draft. The NFL draft has some reality to it. Your life doesn't. Without Christ, it's nothing. It's all going to disappear. When we put you in a box and drop you in the ground, we are not going to think one second about the things that you've done in your life. We're going to be singing about what he's done for all of us. We're going to sing about how much, or we're going to speak about how much you love that Christ. We may not have too much to say. There's nothing else about you that matters. The worms are going to have you shortly. And the robins have the worms, and then the worms keep Greenville car wash going. Lord, help us to thirst. David panted. I read Psalm 63. You don't need to just listen to these words. Other words of David, Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. 
There's no satisfaction in this world for a child of God. It doesn't matter how well you decorate your home. It isn't how pretty your master bedroom is. It isn't whether you've lost weight. It isn't some new dress that you have. It's not a new job. It's not a promotion. It's not a new title. It's not a new business card. It's not a new vacation. All that is junk. The reality of life is outside of your sight, and it's having a living, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and Him filling you with His presence, shedding abroad the love of God for you in your heart and testifying to you and telling you, you are my son. You are my son, and I will never let you go. God does that to His elect children by His Holy Spirit. They cry, Abba, Father, in return. They are able to do all things through Christ which strengthens them because that is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they live a victorious, successful, happy life. And if you're not, it's your fault. It's not his fault, and it's not a shortage on his end. It's on your end. David panted, and you know other verses could be used. Jesus described hungering and thirsting after righteousness in his Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Not hunger and thirst after a promotion. Not hunger and thirst after a vacation. I'm sorry for even using that kind of terminology because it's a joke to even use it and to form the words and sentences from it. Those things are nothing. They make me sick. I despise them in your lives in comparison to Christ. We can never let them compete at all. They are so different from each other and so separate from each other. And yet, we have within us a proclivity toward those things. We prefer those things because our flesh hates Christ and loves the world. What does it mean to not thirst? It means His glorious gospel is nothing to you. There is no craving or vehement desire in you for God's presence or power. You're satisfied with your little life of soap bubbles. His prophecy here is boring to you. This transcendent, world-changing prophecy and its fulfillment go right over your head. All you can do is think about, when will he finish? My butt's sore. We'll exercise it sometime. A born-again child of God will thirst. For God has changed him. If you don't thirst, there's only two reasons. You're reprobate or you're a very carnal Christian with no evidence of eternal life. So I'll call you a reprobate. I don't like going around telling that, saying that half the world's carnal Christians and they're all going to heaven anyway. That isn't true. Right. Watch the dysfunctional lives of the world. The world with the devil's influence and man's emptiness try to satisfy their thirst. They do all kinds of extreme things to try to find, to shut the noise of their conscience down, to find fulfillment, to escape the drugs and the drunkenness and the dysfunction and the divorces and all the trouble they have in their lives are because they can't find contentment, they can't find satisfaction, they can't find fulfillment. Every one of us who get out there and have been in the world before, we know that. Our little kids that haven't been in the world before, they haven't experienced life before, they don't know that yet. All you've got to do is read about the lifestyles of the rich and famous and find out how unhappy, miserable they are and how they have to keep trying to find something new. Extreme sports and all the extreme everything they have is to try to find satisfaction in this life, but extreme efforts will not satisfy the soul because only an infinite God can do that because he made the soul of man to be satisfied by a relationship with him. I have been there and tried things that you young people won't even get to for years if you ever get to them. The satisfaction of life is in Christ. You had another brother already in this pulpit. You have, you've had a couple of brothers in this pulpit. Talk about the satisfaction that is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in, in a church where we get to worship Him together. You heard it from Newell regarding marching to Zion. And the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we walk the golden streets. You heard it from Michael about the relationship that you can have in loving the habitation of God's house. Right. You heard it from Jim, who earlier today said, wrote to some of you about him being altogether lovely to him from Psalm 45, from, from Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 16 or so. That satisfies. I'm a very enthusiastic person. But I, I can tell you what really satisfies. There's only one thing that can bring me to to babbling tears, and I can barely breathe, 
And it's the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory and splendor and grace and majesty and power. Did you hear Jim praying it to him? Those are seasons of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. And they're by the Spirit of God. And we want those. Do you thirst? Is my question. Do you thirst? If you don't thirst, you're like the world. And the world with the devil's influence and man's emptiness try to satisfy thirst, but they can't. Their dysfunctional lives and the great ends they go to fulfillment never fulfill them. There's a famine and a drought today that leaves most Christians thirsty. Amos chapter 8 says that God would send a drought and a famine for the word of God. God would send it because his church deserves it. Because they've been carnally minded. And so Amos chapter 8 verses 11 through 13 says, I will send a famine. And it won't be a famine for bread. And it won't be a thirst for water. It will be for the word of God to be preached. And the New Testament fulfills it in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where it says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. And that's what's happened. And so there, there are God's true children sitting in churches listening to the praise band of the Old Testament and listening to anecdotes and stories and illustrations and jokes who go home starving to have their souls filled, fed, and their thirst quenched by hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious splendor and His marvelous grace and His saving efficacy and His finished work on the cross and His ascension into heaven. You know, they stop with the resurrection. You stop with the resurrection, you're going to hell. He had to get into heaven to be your intercessor. You're saved by his life of intercession. And so we have his ascension to heaven. We have his coronation. Do you even know what? When's the ascension day? Who knows it? Ever heard of it? Now, we, we reject ascension day as much as we reject Halloween because it's a Roman Catholic holiday. But have you ever heard of it? Come on, a Lutheran would have heard about it. Ascension day. May 25th this year. We don't care. Because we want to think about His ascension every day. Do you know how we call today the Lord's Day? Because this was the first day of the week in which He showed Himself alive after His resurrection to His apostles. It's the Lord's Day. We remember His, his resurrection and His ascension every Lord's Day. And so we're, hopefully we're in the Spirit in the Lord's Day. Let Him come unto me and drink. We learn what it is to come to Christ in John chapter 6. It is to believe on Him with a life-changing faith that alters your experience in life, your purpose in life, and you run to Christ and embrace Him personally, and you don't want to live without Him, and you can't live without Him, and no one else and nothing else in this life can replace or be a substitute for Him. We, we learned about it in John 6, because there were many that came to Jesus, thousands of them that believed on Him, but He rejected them, and He drove them away in John chapter 6, because they were only seeking earthly bread and meat to fill their bellies, rather than a personal relationship with him. And so they turned and went away from him. The next verse tells us, he that believeth on me, verse 38, explains what it means to come unto me and drink. It's to believe on Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God and the all-sufficient Savior of your sins and the friend and bishop and high priest and apostle of your soul is what it means to come to him. It's to reject any pretense about him. It's to reject any hypocrisy toward him. It's to reject any superficial, sacramental, traditional, ceremonial way of coming to him. It's to come to him personally, spiritually, really, affectionately, intimately, embracing him, giving him your whole life. I'll do anything for you, Lord. That's what happened when Saul of Tarsus met him. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? When Isaiah met him, here am I, send me. That's what happens. Peter, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. We ought, it ought to have that effect on us. Right. The most important thing you can possibly consider today is coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care if you think you've come before a hundred times. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care about any of that, neither does he. Where are you right now? Are you thirsting right now? If you're not thirsting right now, does that mean you're fully satisfied with Christ and you know that your love is as fervent as it ever was in your life? 
then you're thirsting or you should be thirsting. So let us thirst and let us drink by coming to Jesus Christ and embracing him. Lord, we repent of our contentment in the world. We repent of our pursuit of the world. We repent of trying to satisfy our thirst and give our lives fulfillment and to find pleasure outside of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We repent. Forgive us for our sinfulness. Forgive us for our fleshliness. Forgive us for our carnality. Forgive us for our blasphemous rejection and neglect of your Son. And oh Lord Jesus, come to us. Come in and embrace us and sup with us. Right now, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, come to us. Heavenly Father, bless us and fill us with your Spirit that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and obey the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of our lives. Lord, we give you every part that we have. Brethren, we must pray and seek him that way. If any man thirst, he cried. Let him come unto me and drink. Verse 38, he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said out of his belly, shall flow rivers of living water. He that believeth on me. I just showed you how to believe on him. To believe on him again. To believe on him again today. And to believe on him again this afternoon if you need to believe on him again. And to come to him. He'll forgive you every time. He knows you're going to fail 10,000 times between now and when he comes for you. He already knows that. That's why he died on the cross. He died for your sins past, present, and future. If you sin, confess it and run forward to him. He's ready and willing to receive you. He knows that the greatest sinners that he forgives are also the greatest lovers. They're the greatest in the kingdom of God. They're his favorites because they sinned the most. Mary Magdalene, do you think he ever neglected Mary Magdalene, the woman that was possessed of seven devils that he cast seven devils out of? He appeared to her after his resurrection before he appeared to Peter and John and any of the apostles. And the Bible wants you to know that in Mark chapter 16. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And every single one of you are sinners. Some of you just self-righteously paint yourself with your little white paint bucket. But it doesn't work in heaven. It doesn't work with the eyes of the Holy Ghost and the Word of God. We're all ugly sinners, vile scum, saved by the grace of a gracious God. And so we come to Christ. We love Him. He's an altogether beautiful captain, prince, man, savior, friend, lover, beloved, priest, apostle, high priest, good shepherd, great shepherd, bishop of our souls. He's the door. He's the vine. He's the foundation, the cornerstone. He's everything. Sorry. He that believeth on me as the scripture hath said. It is a preacher's duty to use the scriptures and Jesus showed that duty. I don't have time to take you through a whole lesson here on how to preach because I've got it in front of me, but we're not going to do it. Jesus showed how do we preach. We quote scripture and then we present scripture. It's a preacher's duty to use the scriptures. What is preaching? The Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, so they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. The greatest preaching service in the Bible is Nehemiah chapter 8. I wish I'd have been taught it much earlier. I wish my father had been taught it much earlier. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. But they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense There's one sense that rightly divides the word of truth and caused them to understand the reading. That's preaching. And so Jesus is doing that by taking Scripture and applying it, in this case, to himself. Paul is such a great example for preachers because he did just that. Paul would go into a city like Thessalonica. He would would grab the yellow pages or use his smartphone to find out where the synagogue was in town. He would go straight to the synagogue where they had scriptures and people there that wanted to hear them. And he would open and allege from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That is arguing like you were in court by using this evidence and this evidence coupled with this evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And these facts, Paul, the, the apostle Paul would do that, opening and alleging that Jesus was the Christ. Those are opening statements by a lawyer And Paul would preach, that's how you preach. You don't tell stories and you don't illustrate things with little earthly junk that little old ladies like and it's fit for 
Girl Scouts around a campfire someplace. You bring the Word of God to bear. And so much more could be said. I love the Apostle Paul. You go to Romans 15. He quotes an Old Testament Scripture as as it is written. He'll say, as it is written, then he'll give a verse. The next verse, again, 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 and again. He does that in Hebrews chapter 1. He's just appealing to this, this, this fact. He puts five facts together. Jury, this is the situation. Five facts together, and I've seen them with my own eyes. Are you going to believe on Jesus Christ of Nazareth or not? Beautiful. That's how, and Jesus was preaching the same way because he said, as the scripture hath said, it's the, it's the hearer's duty to demand, expect, and use Bible evidence, but they don't care anymore. They don't want the Bible. That's why they've turned their ears away from the truth and are turned to fables and entertainment. They want to be entertained with fables and stories and illustrations and anecdotes and jokes and get some athlete to get up and give his testimony. That isn't preaching. Right. Preaching is bringing the word of God to bear on people's lives. Most, most athletes that use the name God don't even know the God of the Bible. And every hearer should demand it. The Bereans were more noble. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, the Holy Spirit says the Bereans were more noble in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. A good church demands the Word of God being preached all the time. Okay, where does it say in the Old Testament, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water? It doesn't say those words anywhere. Jesus is referring to a collection of statements made about water in the Old Testament and a collection of prophecies about the Spirit being given in the Old Testament. Let me share just a few of them with you. I mean a very few. I have 14 Old Testament prophecies of water referring to the Spirit or the Spirit itself without reference to water. There is no quotation like this. In the Old Testament, exactly like this. So Jesus is summarizing a general prophecy from the Old Testament of the blessing of the Holy Spirit coming. Oh, let's go to Psalm 36, since it was used already once today. Maybe twice will help you retain it. Psalm 36, verse 7. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Verse 8, they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. Look at those words. They shall be abundantly satisfied. Is that barely satisfied or very greatly satisfied? With the fatness of thy house. There's fatness in here. That's the marrow. That's the fat. You want to eat a ribeye. Ribeye is better than sirloin. I know there's a couple of you people in here that would actually tell me that sirloin's better than a ribeye. But go look at the protein, fat, macronutrient content of both steaks. Ribeye has more fat marbled into it, and fat is where the flavor is. It's okay if you like sirloin. I usually get sirloin too. It's cheaper. (laughs) And I I usually want the protein. But fat's good too. Fat is good. Fat, the fat of the land. Was that a bad statement? The fat of the land. Fat is wonderful. That's another subject for another time. Fat is wonderful when you eat it, not when you wear it. That's a subject for another time. But look, I want you to love the verse. Thou shalt make the... They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. When you come into the house of God the right way, every song, every prayer, every word, psalm, preaching, prayers in the back, it's fatness. It's fatness. You're feasting on fatness. You've handed me a plate of bacon, and you can't hand me anything that tastes better than a plate of bacon. But when it's the fatness of God's house. You can tell me all you want to about your Caesar salad, but unless it has a lot of bacon in it, don't even offer it to me. Caesar salad with bacon in it is very good. Say, how do you know? I eat everything with bacon. <laughs> and I eat bacon with everything. Except, is it Fountain Inn that has their bacon festival once a year? Or Simpsonville? Simpsonville has a bacon festival every year. They create 500 things down there in the streets of Simpsonville made from bacon milkshakes. They've got it. 
I just not. It's called the Bacon Festival, and it's every year. I haven't been there. All of that was to say, do you know what fatness means? Or do you want that 90-10 burger? You want a 90-10 burger? 80-20? You can eat an 80-20? You're suffering. Get some fat in that thing. Add some Italian sausage. Put something real in it. It's boot leather. Fat! My point is fat! Fat! They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house because the Holy Spirit satisfies the human soul. And thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. So there's a verse that refers to water satisfying the thirst of men. And they're the pleasures of God that satisfy a man. And it comes through the house of God. And it comes through hearing the gospel and believing and being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's just one example prophecy of the 14. Oh Lord, which other ones should I look at? Look at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, there's 14 of them. There could be more. There may be more. There probably are more. Isaiah 44 and verse 3. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. What did it say in Acts chapter 2 about the day of Pentecost? I will pour out of my spirit. What do you pour? Do you pour a solid? Do you pour a gas? Or do you pour a liquid? You pour a liquid. You pour water. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thy offspring. There is a successive generations receiving the blessing of the Spirit of God being poured out upon them by God. That's Isaiah 44. If you look back at Isaiah 43 and verse 20, The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. My chosen people will get water to drink because I will provide it for them. Look at Isaiah 59, and with that, we will leave these 14. There's 14 of them. I'm giving you about four. Isaiah 59. This is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 20. Isaiah 59, verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. There are Zionists today that believe a verse like this applies to some future regathering of physical Jews. That is not true. Paul said this was fulfilled in Romans chapter 11, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus the Redeemer came the first time and turned people away from their transgressions. I, I read it again. Isaiah 59, 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord, As for me, this is my covenant with them. Those that turn from transgression in Jacob, the true followers of God that were in Israel at the time Jesus came, As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. That's the fulfillment of John 14, 15, 16, Acts 2, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The living waters are the gift of the Holy Spirit formally given at Pentecost because verse 39 tells us that. The belly is metonymy, figure of speech called a metonym for man's internal parts, your heart, your soul, your spirit, your conscience. It's not your stomach. It's not your large colon. It's not your small intestine. It's your inner affection parts, decision-making parts, your heart, your spirit, your soul. Most religions deal with man externally by rituals, sacraments, and traditions. Religions that deal with the spirit or mind, Buddhism, and other such use forced hypnotism or such like. Listen to our religion. But Christianity has infinite Jehovah indwelling men with infinite influence and superpower for their lives, dwelling in them, working himself out through them. Other, other religions, they can't get close to Christianity. And that's why Christians have done so much in the history of the world and others haven't. You know, strapping a, ba- strapping a bomb to your baby and dropping it off in a restaurant is not exactly accomplishing a great deal. 
but having a place that's the desire of the whole world by the morality of it and the freedom of it, the widespread religious freedom and the preaching of the gospel on every corner in the past, you know, was a great accomplishment. And it wasn't done with a scimitar or a crescent moon. The flow of rivers, that's just, I just want, I wish I could spend more time on that, how religions differ. And ours is God indwells us. We don't have to go to Mecca and, tra- and stamp- stampede each other and trample each other underfoot as we're throwing stones at the devil. We don't have to do anything like that. We don't have to go to Salt Lake City to find some relative of Joseph Smith and have him baptize us in an underground baptistry in a Mormon temple. We get to come into here and have God indwell us. Right. He dwells in, in the midst of us because this is his habitation. This is where he wants to dwell on earth is in the congregation of his people, but then he comes inside each one of us. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? See, you're supposed to know that. That's why the apostle wrote, what? Know ye not? It should change the way you live. You could never go to a prostitute because if you go to a prostitute, 1 Corinthians 6, where that verse is found, says, how can you make your body, which is the Holy Spirit's temple, and join it up and become one flesh with a prostitute? No! That's why the only music that should enter these two holes should be temple music. You have two holes coming into the temple of the Holy Ghost. Let it be temple music that will please the Holy Spirit rather than quench or grieve Him. The flow of rivers represents a very large supply with a perpetual source for it. All aspects of that metaphor, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That It rejects a little dew dropping on a dry plant, doesn't it? Out of his belly shall flow rivers, plural, of living water. Flowing rivers out, moving, like Niagara Falls. Our two sisters are going to go to Niagara Falls after they leave our place. They're going to get on that boat and actually get up close and personal to it. We hope they enjoy it and they're safely kept in all their travels. They have many thousands of miles to go before they're safely home again. The flow of rivers. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. All aspects of the metaphor Think about those words. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Soundly reject a dipped finger to cool a tongue, doesn't it? There's a little bit of water that the rich man wanted in hell. A river that flows has a source supplying more water than can be contained. That's why it's flowing. It can't reside in its place because it has too much for the area. This is a plurality of rivers bursting out from a man with singular water. There's only one water because it's the influence of the Holy Spirit coming out, but it's so much it's described under the plurality of rivers flowing out from a person. You say, I just can't grasp the metaphor. Can you grasp this one that's similar? God said, stop robbing me and bring your tithes and your offerings into my storehouse and I will pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. Do you get that metaphor? That he can pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. I mean, is there, is there no bank account that's going to be able to hold what you're going to have and what you want to deposit? No. It's going to overwhelm you. And so this, this spiritual influence is going to be so great in you that it's going to burst out and it's going to affect others. It's going to be diffusive and affect other lives. Do you know what happened? On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 in an upper room that were hiding for fear of the Jews. What happened when the Holy Spirit came on them? They came out of hiding and began preaching boldly and turned... What did did our enemies say? They turned the world upside down. Christianity has gone through all nations. Only a handful of nations are Muslim nations. Christianity has gone everywhere. Long before an illiterate traitor named Mohammed came up with his mongrel religion by stealing from the Jews and the Christians. He knows who we are. He calls us the people of the book. What do we call ourselves? Bible Christians. What does he call us? The people of the book. Why? Because our religion is based on the written revelation of God. The flow of rivers, superabundant to overflow. 
The Bible says so much about this. The, the, the gifts that it gave them to speak in tongues, and that was the least gift in the church. When the gifts are ranked in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31, tongues are last. First is apostles. The apostles could do anything, preach anything, understood everything. It was an amazing gift. On men like Peter? Are you kidding me? The man Peter became a giant preaching, healing by his shadow. He could walk up to the beautiful gate of the temple and say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. Oh, yes. That man was jumping around for two chapters as a testimony in Jerusalem for the healing power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just got to put this away. Turn it upside down. Let's look at the verses and finish. Verse 38. There's too much material. These are wonderful verses. I want you to rejoice in them. A transcendent event took place 2,000 years ago that is still true, and our church believes it. And when we come in here, that spirit is here, and that spirit is in each one of us. And he can give you the power and the delight in Christ. He can show you Christ like you've never seen him, but we've got a thirst. And we can't satisfy that thirst with anything else, and we're prone to do it. We're prone to wander away from the real fountain. And the real fountain is the Lord Jesus Christ. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You should be diffusive in the change that is visible around you. The fruit that you bear. Didn't you women just have a presentation given to you at a ladies' meeting about being trees of life? You should be a tree of life because the Holy Spirit should be bearing fruit in you, through you, from you. You should have things to say to lift the heavy-hearted. You should have things to say to educate and instruct the ignorant because the Holy Spirit should be filling you. But if you don't thirst and you haven't drank, then you don't have him. So you don't have anything to give any of us. We don't care about the meal that you fix. We care about the way you fix it. Do you fix it with a song on your voice and melody in your heart and love of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 39 but this spake he of the Spirit. What Jesus said in verses 37 and 38 was about the Holy Spirit of God. He is telling you what the metaphor of the rivers of living water is. He's telling you what the metaphor thirst and the metaphor drink is. It's the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. It is a gift only for believers. And of course, we know that that is faith backed up with works. Because faith without works is dead, being alone, and doesn't get anything. It's faith that changes lives. It's faith that does great things. It's faith described in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But let's look at that more closely. What is faith in Hebrews 11? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God, faith brings a person to God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It is diligently seeking God. It is diligently coming to him and is doing whatever he says. It is a life-changing faith. The, The gift of the Holy Spirit is only for such men. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. The Holy Ghost had been given for thousands of years. The Holy Ghost came upon Gideon. The Holy Ghost came upon Jephthah. The Holy Ghost came upon Samson. The Holy Ghost came upon Saul. The Holy Ghost came upon David. How can it say the Holy Ghost was not yet given? He wasn't yet given as the personal representative and comforter in place of the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart of every believer and to inhabit every one of his local churches. That hadn't happened yet. And it was, a, it was going to happen. That's the difference. Much more could be said, and you know it could be said, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Oh, yes, it all turns and hinges upon Jesus being resurrected. How long did he show himself alive with many infallible proofs? Forty days. He died as the Passover lamb. He was in the ground three days. He was alive and showed himself to one group of people of over 500 at once for 40 days. And then he left his apostles for a week. And on that 50th day, he was he, he poured forth the gift of the Holy Ghost. He wasn't yet glorified. He hadn't yet been exalted to heaven. 43 days after he died, 43 days after he died, he ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
right hand of the majesty on high, he was crowned the king of the universe. A man was promoted over all angels, principalities, and powers, thrones, might, dominion, every name that is named in this world and the world to come. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is subordinate to God because 1 Corinthians 15, 28 tells us that he is God in his divine nature. In his human nature as our mediator, he is subordinate to God. But in his human nature, though subordinate to God, he is the ruler of the universe. He is our older brother. He's not ashamed to call us brother in Hebrews chapter 2. He is our savior. He's been exalted. And when he was exalted, God rewarded him for his death on the cross by giving him the Holy Spirit. And he in turn gave the Holy Spirit to us, Amen. his followers in this world. And he's coming for us very soon. But until he comes for us, he stays with us, dwells with us, and abides with us along with his Father through the divine presence inside us by the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.